Aloha, North Kohala. You're listening to Holly Allgood on Tutu's Talk Story here on KNKR LP 96.1 FM Kohala. I'm very excited to say today that we have a special guest, Gloria Jackson, who is a physician, a musician, a vocal arranger, and many, many more things that we're going to hear about today. Welcome, Gloria. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. So, Gloria, I'm very interested to hear stories of your life, and maybe you can start off by telling me from where you came, where you were born, and what life was like for you growing up. Okay. Well, I am coming here from Virginia, Fredericksburg, Virginia, uh, way over there. It's about 60 miles south or so of Washington, D.C. So there's much activity right now in that area. Born and raised in Wisconsin, Racine, Wisconsin. Um, Interesting place to be from, beautiful. Um, I'm happy that it was Racine. Uh, My family now lives in Milwaukee. Let's see, growing up. um, Raised in Racine, and I, again, I'm thankful for that because our demographic there in Racine was mostly Italian, um, Swedish, uh, Danish, Um, just a few uh, Mexican-Americans and a handful of African-Americans. And so we all got along extremely well. I'm very happy about that. Um, Later in life, of course, uh, as you get a little older and you start recognizing other kinds of considerations around you, I became unfortunately acutely aware of the fact that some of my friends' mothers weren't that crazy about my playing with their kids. Um, that was a little uh, difficult. And that was in it. Racine? Yes, it was. What it kind was of a community? Racine. Is it a large, small agriculture city? It was one where a lot of folks from the south came north to work in the still mills. That was really what it was known for. J.I. Case Company uh, made tractors and big, heavy equipment. That was one of the major employers there. Smaller town, 80,000 people, I recall, growing up. Not a lot, but... Uh, Um, not that small either, but enough that we all pretty much knew each other. We knew generations of each other's families, that kind of thing. My grandmother and grandfather were like uh, Lackawanna Blues, if you know that movie, where a lot of people were coming up from the South to find work, uh, and they opened their home. Uh, They had like a residential home, and my grandmother would cook. She's a fabulous cook. And that was, they were very entrepreneurial. You know, as I look back, that's exactly what that was, very entrepreneurial. Um, So I have that wonderful gene, thank goodness, passed through to me, which I appreciate from my mom and dad. So can you talk a little bit more about, you say, some of your friends' mothers uh, were not pleased that you were playing with their children. What? How old were you, and what was going on? It was in elementary school, and uh, I remember I had a very, very, very good friend uh, that I played with all the time. Her name was Jeannie Buttonhoff, <laughs> and uh, and uh, we were just the best of friends in in class, out of school. Uh, and one day, I remember her mom coming around and telling Jeannie that. Uh, she couldn't play with me anymore. And she kind of grabbed her by the arm and pulled her into the house and asked me to go home and uh, told me that, you know, I didn't need to come back because Jeannie couldn't play with me anymore. So it's like... And you didn't get a reason? No, she never gave me a reason. Um, I later, it was, it took me a while. I'm a kid, you know, later it took me a while to realize and look back, oh, that's what that was. It was the color line being drawn between myself and my good friend. So did more of that happen in elementary school? Um, Yes, actually, uh, a little more in elementary school, but it really happened with, I remember a friend, another friend of mine, um, we actually grew up pretty much next door. Our mothers were friends. And we also had another friend, uh, Jeff Van Conningsveld, you know, so uh, both of us loved playing with Jeff. Well, one day, my friend decided that she wanted to play with Jeff away from me. So it became like a, a, a split off, you know, a competition, and she wanted to fight. And I was completely confused by that as well. It's like I thought we were friends. 20 minutes ago, we were friends. What happened? Something changed. So there, was a, they, there began to be a little more racial tension, but we knew 
uh, just as soon as uh, junior high school came and we were being bused out to a school that had very few, if any, African Americans, then it became a lot more palpable. Um, but I just uh, took a sidestep to that and I got involved in the theater. Uh, and I was always one to want to bring levity uh, to the whole situation. So I began really to focus on how I could encourage people to laugh and get along and uh, not really go down the, the hate road like a lot of people are on right now, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. And so tell me about the busing. Well, that was, I, you know, when you look at that, if you're a kid and you're going through that, I didn't really realize what was really happening in terms of the, the major change that was coming. I knew that there were many of us going through the cold and having you know, our, uh, our uh, uh, mucus in our nose freeze as we went to the bus, uh, getting on this bus and being bussed out to this other area that took a while for us to go. I remember um, one day we were coming back uh, from school and my I stayed over with my aunt because she lived out in this area that was a mostly European-American area. And uh, this guy ran a stop sign and hit our car as they were coming and bringing us back to our neighborhood. Um, and it was in a 100% European-American area. People came out of their homes. Now, we're involved in an automobile accident. And my cousin and I, he was a couple years older than I, uh, we got out of the car. We managed to get out of the car. The guy that hit us was drunk. Um, we got out. We were hurt. So we went to the first door that we saw. We went up the stairs and knocked on the door and told the people that we had been in an accident. Fortunately, the people's door that we knocked on were fine and friendly and, oh, come in, and we are so sorry, can we do anything? We're going to call the police. They were very, very, very supportive and accommodating under the circumstances. As the police arrove, arrived, and uh, other, we noticed that other people had started coming out of their homes because they saw the two African-American kids going up into this woman's home. They came out, they were carrying brooms and, and bats and, and things like that. Uh, and um, uh, my grandfather and grandmother had arrived uh, by then. Uh, and everybody was concerned, of course, we're in an accident. We told them we were fine, just a little beat up, but other than that, a little banged up, but other than that, we're okay. Well, now my grandfather, who at the time was in his uh, upper 60s, gets out of the car and he comes over there to talk with us. Well, the people that had gathered with their brooms and bats and sticks and things started yelling, you know, get out of our neighborhood. You're not supposed to be here. You know, get out of our neighborhood. And they kind of started coming at us. You know, they really started coming at us with their brooms and everything. So we're all freaked out. And my cousin uh, had, he was there too, I remember. He had what, what we used to use in a, as an Afro comb. It was really a cake cutter. Mm -hmm. But we would use them because they would fluff our afros, you know, so it was a very cool I way. remember those <laughs> angel food cake cutters. Right, exactly. <laughs> so when, when he pulled that out, they thought weapon. Mm. And so then they wanted to attack us even more. My grandfather, uh, who was defending us from being attacked by all these people, ended up being arrested for the very first time in his life, in his late 60s. They grabbed him and put cuffs on him. My cousin, because he had pulled out his Afro comb and it was seen as a weapon, thank goodness they're not, they didn't do then what they're doing today, and that is shoot now and ask questions later. Um, they, they handcuffed him as well. So both of them, although we were being taken to the hospital, they were being taken to jail and neither of them had ever been arrested you know, in their lifetime. So to say that I was upset by that is kind of minimizing how we felt about what was going on, and we didn't really understand why uh, people had the sense that they needed to attack us in order to protect themselves from us in that we were the ones that were injured, Yeah, you know, mm -hmm. so. So this was when you were in middle school? That's middle school. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And then after middle school, did you go to a different high school? I did. I went to a high school that was literally right around the corner from where I lived. So mm -hmm. it was a, a school, more of a mixed 
uh, demographic there. Um, and we all got along. We, we, we all, it was just amazing to me that, that I, I almost, I do know now that it's really the kids' parents that instilled in them these attitudes where we were inappropriate no matter where we went, you know. Um, now, um, many times, uh, one thing that people don't realize is that when we're going into different places, certainly I can speak about affirmative action because I was on the front wave of affirmative action, one of the first schools during that time to go out, and one of the first people in the schools to go out and to merge into primarily European-American schools. Um, when we are able to do that, we are really achievers. We're top achievers when we're the ones to be on that first wave. They're not going to send you know, grub hubs over there, they're not just not going to do it. Um, so we were the, what we call the cream of the crop uh, off the top, and, um, and we pioneers. were the first wave. Yes, we were. We were the mm -hmm. first wave. That really didn't hit again. Uh, the whole racial thing didn't hit again until uh, medical school mm -hmm. in Cincinnati. Well, yes. we'll get to medical okay. school, but first I want to know, how did you decide to become a doctor? When I was six years old, um, my grandmother, my grandmother's mother, was a uh, midwife slash root worker down in uh, Memphis, Tennessee, and um, she knew a lot about uh, herbs and putting things together, you know, that were available from nature in order to assist people from whatever predicament they found themselves in uh, to a much better, calmer, safer, healthier place. So one day I had a, um, a sniffle and a sore throat. I went down to my grandmother's. I would go there after school. Uh, my parents worked, so we would go to my grandmother's house until they got home. She went into her cupboard. She heard me sniffling and asked me, you know, how I was feeling. I told her I had a sore throat. She went into this room that she had. I was always fascinated about her room because it had a curtain on it, you know. So she would pull the curtain and, and go in, and she would start rattling around and all these little bottles and things, and she would pull the curtain. So I was like, what is behind the curtain? Look at the Wizard of Oz. What is behind the curtain? Uh, and so she brought this little terrible taste in concoction that she had put together out and told me to drink it. Well, I did. It was terrible. I hated it. And uh, probably about 10 minutes after I drank it, the sniffles were gone and the sore throat went away. So I said, oh, I want to be a doctor. Now, I'm thinking that what she was doing was a doctor. You know, if you're not exposed to a whole lot and the whole nuances of the healing arts and an herbalist versus a doctor versus a naturopath versus a you're thinking doctor. So at that stage of my life, I'm thinking doctor. Okay, six, boom, I'm going to be a doctor. So I sat out on that trail. You know, I can't tell you how many times the different counselors were trying to say, oh, no, little girl, you really want to be a nurse. And I'd say, no, I really want to be a doctor. I do know the difference, you know, so. And what kind of support did you get from your family for that? Oh, of course. I mean, I'm held in high esteem. Of course, I want to be a doctor. You know, that's like you want to be a, a astronaut in that in those days uh, so it was an exciting thing um, everybody was of course extremely supportive and I knew at that time it was almost as if I had blinders on I could not see anything else it wasn't about any other career doing anything else it was about becoming a doctor now uh, had many people in your family gone to college no so no. so were you the first I was the first so another pioneering trail for you. Yes. And yes. did you do that because you knew that was the path to becoming a doctor? Yes, I actually did. Uh, I knew that it was going to take a number of years. It was going to take a lot of work. It was going to take um, my continuing to be academically above board in order for me to get there. And I was willing to do it. So, so where did you go next? Well, from, from elementary school or from, from high, school. high school? From yeah. high school. I went to uh, a school that I loved. It's called Oberlin College, mm. uh, and it was a, a very liberal place to be. So coming from a little town, you know, 80,000 people, I went to a school in a little town, even smaller. Uh, there were like 1,800 people in the town of Oberlin, and that does not count the number of students. We probably matched that. 
Um, but uh, it was a wonderful place to be. And uh, when, when I first got there, I'm a singer. So uh, my mom started us singing, me singing, when I, when I started walking. So not shortly after three years old, I started singing. Um, so of course, when I got to Oberlin, which has a conservatory of music there, um, I was fascinated just going over there and kind of hanging out and listening to what was happening. But a couple of friends of mine and I created a, a thing called the Oberlin Black Ensemble, and it still exists today. So, Well, how exciting. Another was. pioneering move. <laughs> You're listening to Dr. Gloria Jackson here on KNKR LP 96.1 FM Kohala. I'm Holly Allgood, your host on Tutu's Talk Story. We're going to take a short break and be back with more of Gloria soon. Aloha, North Kohala. Sushi Rock will be hosting their weekly food drive this Wednesday, June 24th. Pickup will be on the Sushi Rock Lanai at 4.30 p.m. Each family will be given one bag of groceries. If you or anyone you know needs groceries, please send them our way this week. Please wear a mask and maintain social distancing while you are in line. We want to thank all our donors and volunteers for making all this happen. If you are able to make a donation, please stop by Sushi Rock any day from 3 to 7. Remember, we're all in this together. Mahalo. Aloha. We would love to invite you to an organic spiritual conversation that relies on the spontaneity of what's alive in the moment. Please join Isla and Mikel Anna on First Wednesdays, July 1st and August 5th from 3 to 4 p.m. for Intuitive Talk Story. We look forward to it. Be well. Aloha, North Kohala. It's Holly Allgood on Tutu's Talk Story here on KNKR LP 96.1 FM Kohala. We're talking with Dr. Gloria Jackson today, and she's talking about some of the racial tension she felt growing up as an African-American child in Wisconsin. Uh, if you have any comments or questions, please feel free to give us a call at 884-KNKR or 884-5657. Gloria, tell us what you loved about Oberlin College. It was small, first of all. You know, I didn't feel like I was going out into a 20,000-people university. Uh, it had all of these wonderful people um, from all over the country uh, I was fascinated because of the different uh, big cities that these people represented coming from a, quote, small city. The biggest city I knew was Chicago around us. So um, it was fascinating. They were very talented. Uh, we did a lot of running around as, as college students. We'd get in our car because we're here in Ohio. And we'd drive to New York for the weekend or something like that and putter around with other, you know, and stay in our, our friends' homes and things like that. So wonderful, um, smart, creative, uh, fearless, um, very liberal, always wanting to do something that was going to favorably impact not only the communities that we're in, but the rest of the world. And so I was totally excited. Mm -hmm. It was a perfect opportunity for me. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it sounds like a great yeah. opportunity, and it, it sounds like you had an opportunity to also uh, dive into your musical passion more. I did. I did. With the Oberlin Black Ensemble, um, uh, we actually traveled. We did some traveling, and we were quite acknowledged because we were coming from Oberlin, and we did some very uh, unusual music at the time, and uh, we wrote some of the things that we did. Uh, and we literally traveled around. Uh, we were bussed around. One of our, quote, winter term projects, uh, you had a 30-day period where if you got a supervisor to sign off on a project that you wanted to do, then you got to do that project. Well, one of our winter terms was traveling with the Oberlin Black Ensemble. So we had a blast, to say the least. What kind of music did you sing, and where did you go? Cross-genre, um, I remember, uh, what is it, Bridges Over Troubled Water, Aretha Franklin, we sang that. We sang a lot of different songs, uh, nothing necessarily for choirs, but we made, made it into a choir arrangement. I remember going out to California. Um, I remember going to a few small towns in there where people were kind of like, who are these people and why are they here? But we, 
Fortunately, we're doing music, so music crosses over whatever other thing may be happening. It's one of those universal languages, thank goodness for that. Uh, and so we would kind of break up the ice per se or melt the ice just by doing the music that we did and, and just being the, the friendly, you know, folks that we were. And during this time, you still continued your in interest in becoming a physician. Oh, absolutely. That went on. I was a, a biology major. Mm -hmm. um, so, yes, that continued. Um, and at the time, uh, I was also into sports as well. I'm, I'm a tall kid. I was uh, five, six, and sixth grade. And so I kept growing an inch uh, a year from there until I graduated from high school. So I'm, I'm tall. So, of course, I'm, I played basketball in high school and, and a little bit in college. But more importantly, in college, I dated the basketball coach. So that was like more of a, <laughs> a little bit of a spin. It just mm -hmm. happened to be uh, Tommy Smith of the 68 Olympics, the guy who held his fists up for black power, if you all remember. Mm -hmm. um, I, I was dating him, quite quite a handsome man. It was, mm -hmm. So it was a fun, fun time for mm -hmm. the young kid as mm -hmm. well. Mm -hmm. And that didn't cause any raised eyebrows that you were well, on the team and the coach's you know, girlfriend? <laughs> I mean, you know, we're, we're, we're college, so now we're, mm -hmm. we're the age that we can do things like that, and people don't really yeah. raise eyebrows as much. We're mm -hmm. in our 20s mm -hmm. now, so... Mm -hmm. We're, we're open. So after college, what happened next? Well, went on to medical school, and that's where things started getting very interesting. I went from Oberlin College, a totally liberal place to be, down to the University of Cincinnati, which was also a liberal place to be, with the exception of some of the folks that were coming across the river from Kentucky in order to come over there. And I remember one of my major hits there. I really didn't realize that I had any until years later, and I look back, but there was a chief of surgery uh, that uh, was responsible um, for giving me a grade. At that time, we were still into grades. One of the things that we did as a group while we were there was we got rid of grades so that all the subsequent classes didn't have to deal with that anymore. But I was in his surgical rotation, and he chose to give me a C. Um, everybody in my, all of my classmates knew that that was not a correct uh, number or letter to give me. And so I went back to him and I said, a C, really? You know, what, what, what was it that I did that you felt that I deserved this C? And he just looked at me and he says, because I want to give you the C. You know, he kind of had a really bad, nasty attitude, this guy. And so I said, well, I don't deserve it. And my classmates supported me and said, no, we know that, if anything, she's the top of this class, not the C. Um, so uh, long story short, I went above his head to the dean. And when he refused to change the, change the grade, and a few of my colleagues actually came with me uh, to talk about the fact that we thought this was inappropriate, he ended up uh, because of pressure from above his head, having to go back and change the grade, and he changed it from a C to an A. Uh, however, when I went in to meet with him, he closed the door behind me, and he went back behind his desk, and he leaned back in his chair, and he started fiddling with his thumbs, and he said, he had this very unusual smile on his face, and he said, you don't know who I am, do you? Southern man. And I'm like, no. <laughs> I know that you're, you know, Dr. So-and-so, but... You know, and I said, well, you must not know who I am either, because I, if, if there's something that's unjust, I'm going to stand up and I'm going to see that it's adjusted correctly. So you must not know who I am either. Let me get a clean. Um, but uh, that's, that's how that all went. Um, um, we were definitely some of the uh, first uh, doing a lot of different things, and certainly the first, may I have a Kleenex? The first um, doing, uh, resisting some of the um, automatic behavior that happened under very, thank you, under very racist uh, conditions. So what he was really telling me was, he was in a position, I didn't realize it until later, he was in a position to be able to darken my future mm. if he chose to. Right. And he did choose to. Mm -hmm. So later I became aware of how exactly he did that. Mm -hmm. But uh, yes. Is that something shareable? 
It is. It is something shareable. Certainly I could be embarrassed and go down that road, but I don't because this is reality and this is exactly what happened. So as I'm going from uh, finishing up school and I was the matron of honor, my classmates chose me as the matron of honor, which meant that you wore a different color robe, you know, from everyone else. And we did a lot of changing. You know, we were a force to contend with coming through, um, making things, tweaking things into a more beneficial format for everyone. So I decided that I wanted to go from Ohio to San Francisco, California, where I'm thinking that has got to be one of the most liberal hubs in the whole United States. Well, mm -hmm. little did I realize that that was not accurate. And in fact, uh, California was one of the more conservative states, certainly, with the Board of Regents at that time. Um, and we also had Governor Ronald Reagan. Uh, who then closed the mental institutions. And I remember I was in psychiatry initially. So I was going out and seeing people at this major mental institution where a lot of people were being housed. Well, one day, literally, he closed all the institutions in a day. So the next day, we all were coming to our rotations. And all the, all the patients were literally walking up and down the street. And then a lot of them showed up in San Francisco, downtown San Francisco. And we were like, what is going on? You know, why are the people out literally walking the streets looking dazed? Because you're, we're talking a lockdown facility that's now closed. And now the people that were there are out on the streets. And now they've become a part of the homeless population. So there were just a number of, of remarkable things that happened then. But one, um, Angela Davis, I didn't realize, Angela Davis had just come through the University of California Board of, Re you know, uh, she was dealing with the Board of Regents and all of that because of some of her activities and her own perspective of what was going on, and she was quite vocal about it. We all know Angela Davis in that time. Well, when I came on the other side of her, and I wasn't really realizing that's what I was doing, and one of the first things that we're looking to do is change some of the policies that have been in place for over 100 years in this, in this uh, institution, because we could clearly see that they were not serving the community at all. It was an ivory tower kind of situation, and it rarely reached into the city uh, to be able to touch the rest of the population. So when this very vocal, uh, liberal-minded woman comes in to the University of California Medical Center uh, and has nerve enough to bring attention to some of the policies that are no longer serving the people and haven't served the people in quite some time. And again, has a conversation that is inclusive. I want to include everyone uh, so that everyone can be assisted and not just a, a small percentage of the people. There was a, a, a a backlash, mm -hmm. to say the least, behind mm -hmm. closed doors. So what happened was they ended up, now all of us are in the same situation. We had been tested, 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 tested. So we took a break on the testing in terms of the licensure testing and all of that, and we knew we didn't have to have any of that in place until we left our residency. So we technically had four years to get that together. Um, so year two, um, I remember my supervisor came over to me and said that, uh, that I was going to be asked to leave the, the residency program, go out, take the licensing exam, and when I passed that, I could come back and finish my residency training. So I thought, hmm, this is unusual since all of us are in the same situation. Program, you yes. know, We're mm -hmm. all here together. Mm -hmm. Why are you plucking me out? Mm -hmm. to have to go do this. So I asked that kind of question. Of course, I didn't get an answer. Then it came to literally pushing me out of the program. I realized that what had happened then was, you know, they were looking at numbers then uh, mm -hmm. and percentages. You know, they had to basically report these things to the federal government. So they found a way to push out the African-American female, you know, and bring in a male, a Chinese male. Right. So that's what they did. Yeah. And they told me that they were leaving my place open until I did this. And I knew I could do it because I was a trainer for other exams and yes. things like that to help right. people do it. It wasn't going to be a big deal. Well, uh, they just as soon as they pushed me out, they brought him in. I'm like, hmm, 
that's not what they said. Right. So I called my, my supervisor and I said, you know, what's going on? I've been over to his home. I knew his children and his wife and all of that. We were actually relatively close. And I remember him saying, Gloria, I can't talk to you. And he was all pressured and stressed. I can't talk to you. I says, what's going on here? If I talk to you, they'll ruin my career. Uh, it's like, well, how yeah. about my career? Right. You know, what about me and all of this? You know, yeah. everybody's hiding and ducking and dodging and saying what they can't do. And they can't be seen with me. They can't talk with me. You know, things like that. I felt completely uh, just eliminated from the environment. And it was just... Uh, I, I cannot tell you how heartbreaking, Horrific. heartbreaking. I was heartbroken, I was sad and annoyed at the same time because I knew I was being isolated and given more uh, requirements to do uh, based on my colleagues. Right. And so that was, yeah. it was disheartening. They ended up uh, changing the rules that year. Um, I didn't, I just went in and I took the exam. Well, uh, you needed to get 75, and the years prior, what they would do is if you got like 74.5, they would roll it, you know, they would roll it to the next higher number, so you'd get 75. Well, I got a 74.8, and they decided that year they changed the rule that they were not going to roll it to the next number and that they were going to hold that number, so they managed to stop me from being able to pass that exam and move on in my career. Uh, and then later I found out when I started seeking a little more information about what I knew something was going on here, uh, especially since there was the administrator. Uh, you could give her $10,000 cash and you could get a license. Whether you could speak the language, read the language, it didn't matter. If you had 10000 and gave it to her, somehow you magically passed this licensing exam and you could have your license well. 10000 cash wasn't something I just had sitting around in my piggy bank. So it was a, a quite an accomplishment for me under the circumstances to come up with that, which I could not do. So um, we were, uh, not only myself, there was a class action law lawsuit against the California Board of Regents at that time for many other docs who had come before me who knew that they had passed that licensing exam and had never received their licenses. They were found, uh, they were found guilty of doing that. And so on the other side of winning that class action lawsuit, everybody was given their license that they had earned years before. But unfortunately, I had missed the deadline of the class action lawsuit. It happened just before this incident happened for me, so I wasn't able to join. Nor was I in a situation where I could hire a lawyer, you know, to look into this. But they had it very, very, very slickly arranged so that we, none of us could ever see the results of our exams. We asked to see them because when you do something and they say, oh, you missed X, Y, Z, if you're able to see that and kind of look at your logic behind why you might have chosen it, it would help you understand how to adjust and be more correct in, in the future. Well, they made it convenient that they did not have to show us. So it ended up, I'm one of these people, if I start something, I like to finish it. And at the same time, I'm also a big believer in the fact that there is a force far greater than us that also has a hand in our destiny and our future. And although I was annoyed beyond comparison then and knew that there was skullduggery going on and was angry and sad at the same time, there was very little that I could do about it. Um, so it helped redirect me onto the road of the healing arts. And so here I am. It, it truly is more of where I really wanted to be, but I realize now that the logic was to get this young African-American girl to become a medical doctor, and then to have me go into the healing arts, which then brings an MD to the healing arts, which is a highly unusual set of circumstances. But it needed, I needed a sledgehammer in order to do it because I was not going to do it on my own. Wow. <laughs> I think we'll take a break. This is Gloria Jackson telling us about uh, a very moving story that she experienced, and we'll be back with her soon. If you want to Make a comment or ask Gloria a question. You can call us at 884-KNKR, 884-5657. This is Holly Allgood at KNKR LP 96.1 FM Kohala. The Big Island Giving Tree will have their next fresh food distribution for those in need on Friday, June 26th at 3 p.m. Pickup will be in Kamehameha Park in Kappa Al, drive-thru only. 
DJ Analisa Remix Bisayan Bodot. Tagalog Larawang Kupas. Unto these hits, Lane and Dub. Only here, be nice to hits. Every Thursday, 11 to 1. Dito sa KNKRLP 96.1 FM. Kuhalas. Okay. <laughs> Aloha North Kohala, it's Holly Allgood here on Tutu's Talk Story. And I want to let you know that uh, the Kohala Village Hub Barn is hosting a drop-in vigil and talk story with One Heart Hub leadership. The date is June 26th, and it is going to be from sunrise to sundown, approximately 5.50 a.m. to 7.10 p.m. It will include a sunrise ceremony, chant, special guests throughout the day, and a sundown myths talk and closing ceremony. Uh, they're asking what is important to you at this time and how you are experiencing this historic moment. Again, that's One Heart Hub at the Kohala Village Hub Barn, June 26th, 5.50 a.m. until 7.10 p.m. We're back with Gloria Jackson, Dr. Gloria Jackson. Who, Gloria, tell us how the rest of your healing arts evolved. Oh, well, here's where the fun began, even mm-hmm. though I didn't realize it at the time, but it definitely got fun. Um, I moved down to uh, a place called Menlo Park, if anybody's familiar with the Bay Area, and I hooked up with a, a, a naturopathic doctor, a chiropractor who was brilliant, a brilliant clinician, and knew a lot about uh, manipulating the body and was also very much into the healing arts. Um, Well, she taught me a few very interesting things, but uh, in terms of uh, assisting the body and feeling better. One of the exciting points, and there were many, many high points with her, was that she introduced me to a group over at Stanford University that met on a pretty regular basis a couple of times a month. And there were a bunch of sensitives, and we sat around uh, in a circle uh, a couple times a month, and we listened to see what we heard, what were the messages that we, each of us were hearing. Once we, we ended our listening, uh, we would document what we heard, and at the time, fax was a big thing. We would fax it to a central number, and there would be a few different schools, a few schools scattered across the country that would also be having these sittings, we called them. And so when the central point got all the different uh, input from the different schools, what we found pretty consistently is that we were all hearing basically the same message. So then that helped us understand that this is coming from above our head. If we're all hearing the same thing, uh, it's obviously being filtered across a very wide area. And we got that after a while. So that was one major big thing. Another one that I recall is being introduced to a couple of gentlemen Um, both uh, of whom had died. Uh, One had died for like a couple of minutes and came back, and the other one was gone for like 15, 20 minutes and came back. And they were both empowered to talk about their experience of leaving the body, how how they got where they went, what it was like when they got there, and then they sat before a committee that said, well, you know, you can choose to stay, or if you want to go back, and you know, talk about this and travel the world and talk about your experiences of being here, then we will empower you to remember every little bit of this experience so that you can share it with other people and they will actually get the, the understanding from you that there is someplace else on the other side of this, you know, this death uh, situation that many of us are, are wondering. Um, so they both describe similar kinds of transitions, not the same, but one, both of them describe being in a place where, uh, first of all, one was in a conch shell. He went to a conch shell in the sky, and when he went to his conch shell, he could literally go from point to point to point in this conch shell, and he could either go back in his life to times that he had lived up until that time when he passed over, or he could go forward into his life and see what it would be like to continue his life 
and he could actually see what was going on there. So that was totally cool. This other guy uh, described more being in a, a place with a lot of doors. And um, he also described his transition there and how he knew that he was somewhere different when all of a sudden there was no sound. It was completely quiet. But when he, when he looked around, he knew that he, he felt like he was still in his body, but of course he didn't see it. And when he would look around, he would see like colorful geometrics swirling in front of him, different colors and different shapes. And he realized that that's how you would tell the different souls out of the body uh, was by the color and shape of that particular energy that that soul was weaving and they would all be different, you know, so he described that and that was also exciting, but both of them were given the opportunity to come back into their bodies uh, for a length of time. I think they chose like a couple of years or so that they would be in their bodies and travel around and then they both died after that. That was the agreement. They both died. And it just so happened that they died from something that I have consistently seen over the years appears to be one of our pathways out, and that is pneumonia. You know, uh, the lungs are seen as uh, the, the organs for, quote, taking in life, you know. And so I found it interesting that it is that organ uh, that also allows us to leave this life. So pneumonia is that passageway, and it was that passageway for them. But those were just a couple of exciting stories. But I got great opportunities to do a lot of totally fun, unusual things, um, learning about the healing arts. Mm -hmm. Where did you go from Menlo Park? Where did I go from there? Yes. Oh, oh my goodness. Uh, <laughs> I actually went from there. I went and got my own place and started uh, doing my own thing. Uh, by then I understood that there were a few things that, that I was also being, a few gifts that I had been given. But until I had the opportunity to explore them and to meet some of these healing arts people, I didn't really realize that. So um, it, it reminds me of a story, though, and I'm gonna regress just for a moment. When I was an intern up at the University of California, uh, I had some friends that were part of the maintenance workers. I was friends with everybody. They didn't have to just be other doctors or nurses. Everybody was, you know, open to friendship as far as I was concerned. So these were a couple of buddies of mine, and they had just had a new baby. Well, it just so happened that they lived uh, within a block from the medical center. So one night when I was uh, on call in the ER, I decided to go down and meet their new baby. Baby was maybe three or four months at that time. So they were excited. I showed up at their door, came in. They brought their little baby up to, you know, I came up to meet the baby. And you know how the baby bounces on the lap? You hold their arms and they do that little bouncing thing? Well, it was doing that little bouncing thing and, and it hit an interesting acrobatic bounce. And the dad lost contact with the baby and the baby flipped back on its, and fell down and hit its neck onto oh the floor and start screaming bloody murder, of course. And so all of us are freaked out, including me. You know, I'm the doctor on the site, but I'm freaked out too. I mean, the baby just fell flipped back onto his neck. Nobody knew what to do. Everybody was frozen. And I went into automatic and I went and I just leaned over and I touched the baby. As soon as I touched that baby, the baby stopped crying instantly. It was like from a terror cry to nothing eyes open just looking at me. So we all kind of looked at each other like, what just happened here, you know? But I picked the baby up, the baby was fine. You know, they're like little rubber balls actually for a while, which is their blessing. Uh, and so that was just something that, that spoke to me. And then I remembered that there were people my, my patients, when I would see them on the ward, and they'd say, oh, Dr. Jackson, we feel so much better when you come in and you just come in the room and we start feeling better. And I'm like, there is something going on here I really want to investigate, but I didn't think of it until later. Well, I started investigating and realized, yeah, there are some things that, that I've, been, I've been given, some gifts I've been given. And one of them is the ability to literally lay my hands on people and have some of their pain and upset go away. So were you practicing in Virginia? 
Where you, I'm, I'm realizing we only have a short period of time left. Yes, okay. And you have so many passions <laughs> I'd love for you to share. <laughs> yes, I was, uh, actually I don't call what I do practicing. Okay. Um, I am a consultant. Mm-hmm. I'm a, an integrative medicine uh, consultant and I do energy medicine. And yes, uh, we were, I've been doing this work in 19, actually it was year 2000. I decided to take a slight turn from the straight energy work that I was doing before that and get into environmental toxicology because I realized that the different things in the environment definitely get into our bodies. And since they do, what happens subsequently? So I started doing a research protocol in year 2000 uh, and learned a lot about how the body presents when it has levels of dust and heavy metals and uh, chemical byproducts and things like that that hover in the body and are stored in various places and various tissues. So I was introduced to this uh, piece of equipment that's a totally good thing. Quantum physics is behind it. And the University of Hawaii also is familiar with it. So I started using it. It was a really good means uh, through which to see into the body and also begin to see the impact of these environmental toxins. So now here I am after 20 years of doing this work. And I've got quite a body of knowledge that I've seen um, and documented and thereby created several protocols over the years. And depending upon what's going on in everybody's body, because we're all different, um, if we catch it early enough, we're able literally to unwind some of the things. I call it unwinding some of the diagnoses that may otherwise be with us for years going forward. Diabetes, we can unwind. High blood pressure, we can unwind. Some kind of cancers, migraines, we can unwind. Different kind of joint problems, things like that. Um, that get into the body, and I've seen a direct correlation between these things and certain heavy metals, lead, arsenic, you know, aluminum, things like that that get into our bodies, some of the plastics, phthalates, etc. Um, but now we know that we can literally use vitamins, minerals, herbs, and supplements to be able to get them out and to basically uh, cleanse the body and to re-energize it and rebalance the different systems that are compromised uh, by it. So as I age, you know, I, one of the first things I do with all my aging brothers and sisters is let, let us know that we have, not that we didn't have anything before, but what we have now is an enhancement on what we've had before. And so my thing is, if we know how to look at our bodies and determine uh, some of the things that are causing us difficulties. Why would we not then use vitamins, minerals, and herbs, things that are non-invasive and things that are food, basically, to be able to unwind those things and take better care of ourselves? So I'm happy to say my basket is full, and here I am here in Nice. Well, I just, I don't know if you saw, but on the news today, the New York Times reported this morning that Bear the company, the pharmaceutical company Bayer that had bought the Roundup product Ooh. is now, uh, was just agreed to pay billions of dollars because they're finding that glyphosate, which is the main ingredient in Roundup, causes non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. Of course. So, but that's, things. I believe that's the largest award I've ever heard of. It was in the billions. That is fabulous. Mm -hmm. You know, they've been, Monsanto, all across the world, people have said, get out of here. But the United States, we opened our arms to them. So I'm glad that now we recognize that, um, you know, if the product is dangerous for us, if the product is damaging and causes us harm, why would we then encourage it to be used? I can give you a, a glyphosate thing for myself. I, um, in Virginia, I didn't recognize it. I didn't recognize the difficulty. But my neighbor would consistently spray Roundup on his uh, dandelions because he didn't want any in his flower beds. You know, and I'm like, you might as well be spraying that up your nose, is what I'm thinking. Um, but instead, he was spraying it up my nose because, and I didn't realize it. I had my window open on that side of the house. Well, one day I woke up, my left leg was paralyzed. Hmm completely paralyzed. And so I'm like, what is going on now? Uh, you know, it's almost like I didn't want to go to sleep because I might wake up and something unusual is happening. Mm-hmm. But um, I realized after I did a little research on different things that idiopathic paralysis is called out as one of the side effects of glyphosate. So mm-hmm. Roundup can produce this very isolated sense of 
paralyzing different parts of your body. Mm -hmm. Incredible. Well, mm -hmm. fortunately, I'm, I'm an energy worker, you know, and mm -hmm. I'm a healer. So I was able to assist my own self in getting rid of the paralysis of my leg, and I got my function back probably in about 10 to 12 days. But that was extremely um, alarming, and it definitely brought my attention to that particular pollutant. So mm -hmm. I'm glad that we have, you know, mm -hmm. finally rounded up the roundup people mm -hmm. and really uh, gotten it so that mm -hmm. we realize that what they're doing to us is damaging. So right. stop, mm -hmm. you know. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit about what you, what your experience or findings were in terms of finding toxins in people with other illness? We all have them. I mm -hmm. mean, it, I always equate us to uh, a plant, a green plant on two legs. And we walk around in different environments. And just like a plant's going to suck up the humidity from the environment, so do we. Mm -hmm. So we're going to suck up whatever's in the air. We, we drink it in the water. We don't know. Uh, we're thinking when we buy, you know, quote, purified water that we're buying good water. Not necessarily. Someone could have stuck their finger under there and said, now my finger is pure, so now it is purified. We really don't know. Um, however, I have seen many, many things in many, many bodies. And we all have some thing. Um, the biggest impact for me is the fact that it appears to strike a certain level where it's almost like that, that, what is it, the hair on the camel's back. All of a sudden, you begin to feel these things. So, an example, if for, if, for instance, you wake up one day, and now you've got all this acute pain in one of your joints. You didn't have it when you went to bed, but now you're waking up, and suddenly you've got, like, total achy breakies and swelling and redness and all of this and, and a couple of isolated joints. There's a good possibility that you might have had some chimichangas or something, you know, or some you know, uh, f fried rice that they weren't necessarily paying attention to the quality of the rice or the quality of the vegetables or the different hormones or the different chickens that they might have used, et cetera, which people don't necessarily. And I, I think it's not so conscious, um, but those are also pollutants that we're consuming. So chances are your body got hit with a few more pollutants than it was able to handle. And what the body will do is it will literally move them out of its way because it does not recognize them to metabolize them, and it will store them. Wherever it's stored, it will cause us difficulty. Mm -hmm. Whether it's in our gut, we'll get nauseous. Whether it's under our skin, we'll break out. Out, whether it's in our joint space, they'll hurt. Whether it's in our spine, it'll throw it off. Mm -hmm. And we'll have these, quote, acute nerve-related situations also. You know, mm -hmm. the spine is also joints. Mm -hmm. So um, there are some very definite associations between the ways that we feel, the different metabolic things that happen in our bodies, high blood pressure, kidney disease, etc., cetera, um, and uh, environmental pollutants being there at a certain level. Mm -hmm. Now, we only have a few more minutes, and I'm realizing we barely touched on your singing or vocal <laughs> arranging. Can, do, would you like to talk about your music, or is there anything else that you are passionate about that you would like to make sure we hear from you? Uh, I Well, I tell you, I've been doing music uh, forever. As I mentioned, I since I was able to walk, my mom had me doing music, uh, and so... Music for me is a, a personal healing thing, and that's one of the reasons I love doing it. Um, it literally can change the way I feel from one moment to the next. Um, one of our last CDs uh, was uh, one called um, Old, Fine, and Funky. So, you know, we're the women there. I have a co-writer. We're both over 65. So there's the old part. Uh, fine, we feel like we're in fine health and a fine representation of aging women, so there's the fine. And we actually do funky music, you know, so there's the funky. And uh, so we, we put together some interesting tunes uh, that we've written. Um, of course, over the years, we've performed with various artists uh, and been a part of their team. But we did this last one on our own. So it's old, fine, funky. It's on CD Baby. You can get it, you know, all kinds of places out there. But just pull up Nubii, N-U-B-I-I, which means many Nubians, many small people of color running around. That's a Nubii. So. <laughs> <laughs> and what kind of music is it? Cross genre. We do everything from funk to rhythm and blues to a little blues, a little jazz, you know, a little pop. 
reggae, you know, whatever seems to filter through into our brains from above our heads. We hear it and we write it down. It has its own genre. And so, you know, we fall into whatever genre that is. Well, and I understand uh, uh, women's, uh, what's the name of your show? Voices. Holy cow. <laughs> women's <laughs> voices. <laughs> Thyroid. Women, women's voices have been, has yes, been playing it. Yeah. Oh, cool. Yeah. Have you really? Yeah. Okay. So, and if somebody wants to listen to your music, just could you repeat one more time where they can find it? Yes, CD Baby, um, iTunes, it's up there. Uh, uh, Reverb Nation, it's up there. But there are a few people that have lifted our name over the years. So just look for N-U-B-I-I, Nubii, and a couple of older women. Mm-hmm. Some of the youngsters have our name as well out there. So, uh-huh. <laughs> no, uh-huh. we're not the 20-year-olds. We're the 60-plus-year-olds. So when did you start partnering with this other person and doing this kind of music? I met her in 1982. So that's a while ago. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. So we've been doing this for a while. We were down in the whole Hollywood thing. And, you know, mm-hmm. there there was a whole host of stories coming from that part of my life. But, mm-hmm. you know, uh, one of them is that we were uh, approached by the the Bloods. Um, and asked if we would join uh, Death Row Records. Mm-hmm. And at the time, uh, Suge Knight was much more prominent, and I knew that me and Suge would probably not get along. Mm-hmm. So I wasn't that anxious to join their, their, their record company. We knew I'd probably be thrown out in a big black garbage bag soon. <laughs> so it's like, no, I didn't want to do it. <laughs> but... Uh, Otherwise, you know, we, we did a lot of good work down in L.A., but mm-hmm. there's a whole different group of stories mm-hmm. there. Mm-hmm. Well, I hope you'll come back another time and tell us these, these different groups of stories. <laughs> it's been a real pleasure having you here today, Gloria. It's been And mine. welcome. Welcome to North Kohala. Thank you so, so much. Mahalo. This is Holly Allgood saying goodbye on Tutu's Talk Story here on KNKRLP 96.1 FM Kohala. You're listening to KNKR L.